Hi everyone, my name is Joe Magnoli, I'm a consultant ENT surgeon based at the Royal National ENT Hospital, which is part of UCLH in central London. I'm really happy to be asked to guide you through a podcast today, and the guys at Scrubbed In deserve great credit for developing such an engaging medical education platform, and I wish them every success. A bit about me, I originally graduated from Bristol University Medical School after my junior years in Seven and Wessex Deanery, I did my registrar training in ENT in London and this was followed by a fellowship in otology and cochlear implantation surgery at Cambridge University Hospitals. In my consultant job now I specialise specifically in ear problems and hearing restoration surgery and you can find out more on my Instagram at earsurgeonjoe where I post educational videos, helpful career tips and insights into surgical life. So for today's case I'm going to place you in the shoes of being an F2 doctor It's the first week of your new rotation through ENT and you're running the SHO Urgent Referral Clinic. A four-year-old boy called James walks into clinic accompanied by his mum to see you. He's been complaining of a left-sided earache for the last three days now and his parents have been giving him regular paracetamol and ibuprofen but things haven't really improved and he was sent home early from school yesterday. Otherwise though he's had no other ear symptoms of note, there's been no discharge from the ear or any dizziness and the pain is very much localised to that left ear which he's holding with his hand. His past medical history is unremarkable, he has an allergy to penicillin uh, but his immunisations are up to date, he's not on any regular medications, he's not had any previous surgery and he has had no previous hospital admissions. He had a normal uh, birth and has been pretty well up until now. After putting James and mum at ease, you carefully examine him. Overall, he seems like a regular four-year-old boy. He's alert and answering your questions and fairly curious about the treatment room that you're in. You carefully examine his ears with an otoscope and find that the right ear looks normal, but the left ear, uh, the, the eardrum is red and slightly bulging. There's no abnormality behind the ear and the rest of the clinical examination is normal. Overall, you make a diagnosis of acute otitis media. So acute otitis media is the most common type of ear infection in this age group. It essentially means inflammation of the middle ear space, including the tympanic membrane. Common symptoms include painful ear, younger children might tug at their ear or rub it repeatedly, or may just display more non-specific symptoms such as fever, crying, poor feeding and restlessness. Examination will usually reveal a relatively normal ear canal and a red or bulging eardrum. The key thing here is to be aware of the latest NICE guidelines for the management of acute otitis media. We know that without any antibiotic treatment, symptoms will improve within 24 hours in about 60% of children with this condition and most children will recover completely within three days. So routine painkillers are always a good first step, regular paracetamol and ibuprofen and it's not necessarily sensible to prescribe antibiotics in every case every time. But there are some important questions you need to ask. Firstly, how old is the child you're looking at? If they're under two, you should start antibiotics straight away. And in fact, if they're three months or under, then that should warrant uh, an admission to the hospital under paediatrics. Is it one side or both sides affected? So bilateral cases of acute otitis media should also be given antibiotics straight away. And finally, duration. So any acute otitis media that's not 
Uh, getting better after three days should also warrant antibiotics. Now, since this is day three in James's case, you make a decision to start oral antibiotics. Since he's allergic to amoxicillin, you prescribe a seven-day course of erythromycin and discharge him home with safety netting advice to his mum to come back if things get any worse. Sure enough, two days later, the clinic receives a call from James's mum and he returns to clinic. His pain seems to have worsened over the last couple of days despite your antibiotic prescription. And when you look in the ear, the tympanic membrane is still red and bulging, but he's very tender to examine and you also now notice that there is some erythema of the skin behind the ear. There's no fluctuant swelling, but you do notice that the post-auricular sulcus is slightly fuller and when you look at his face from the front, his left ear is slightly protruded more than the other. He's otherwise alert and systemically well. You take some OBS and his blood pressure and pulse are within normal range and his temperature is 37.5. On the basis of the examination findings, you take the decision to admit James to the paediatric ward where he started on intravenous antibiotics and kept for further observation. Your microbiology colleagues suggest starting IV keftriaxone and you also send some routine bloods and his white cell count is just above the normal range and he has a CRP of 85. The next day you attend the ward round which is led by your registrar. There appears to have been a progression in James's condition. He's noticeably more miserable this morning and certainly less interactive. On examination there's now a palpable, tender, fluctuant abscess behind the left ear. He doesn't easily tolerate your examination in fact, but you manage to complete this and uh, there are no other abnormal examination findings. This morning's routine blood results show that his white cell count and CRP have both gone up since yesterday and he's also now slightly tachycardic at 155 beats per minute and his temperature is now 38 degrees celsius. The diagnosis here now of course is acute mastoiditis and this is an infection of the mastoid air cells just posterior to the ear canal behind the pinna and more specifically here there has been development of a subperiosteal abscess which is a collection of pus outside of the skull and under the skin just behind the ear. This is a complication of acute otitis media and it's important in this situation to be alert to all the different symptoms that point to severe complications that you need to look out for. And these include facial weakness, dizziness, visual change, neck swelling. And it's really important to manage these children in combination with the expertise of your paediatric colleagues because they can indeed become unwell quite quickly. Any features of being pale, drowsy, clammy, having a stiff neck or sensitivity to light should immediately warrant urgent attention to rule out meningitis and intracranial complications. In James's case, he's got an established abscess and he's now going to need surgery to prevent a more life-threatening situation from developing. It's going to be necessary to let the pus out and there are a few things that the surgeon performing the operation may do, including incising the abscess itself and releasing the pus. This is usually followed by using a using an otologic drill to uh, drill and remove the mastoid cortex and release more pus that will be enclosed within the mastoid air cells extending into the middle ear space. And one might also use a microscope to incise the tympanic membrane via the ear canal and place a grommet which is a small plastic tube that provides ongoing drainage and ventilation to the middle ear space. Before all that happens, James needs to be kept nil by mouth for six hours prior to surgery and it's also crucial to, to obtain a CT scan at this stage 
and this will not only image the ear and the temporal bone to show the abscess, but it also needs to include the brain and the neck. Complicated acute otitis media can also lead to meningitis, intracranial abscesses and neck abscesses, so it's crucial to rule these out before going into any sort of surgery. You certainly don't want to be leaving behind any hidden collections of pus untreated and you need to know if you're going to need to enlist the help of your neurosurgical colleagues if there does turn out to be any hidden intracranial involvement. In James's case the CT goes on to show an opacified middle ear and mastoid with an overlying collection of pus in the subperiosteal space but thankfully no evidence of intracranial involvement or extension to the temporal region or neck. His surgery goes ahead as planned and this is performed by the on-call ENT registrar with direct consultant supervision and it takes about an hour under a general anaesthetic. Once everything's finished, James has a head bandage placed at the end of the operation and this is removed the following day on the ward round by the team. James goes on to receive a further two days of intravenous antibiotics in hospital before being discharged on a further week's course of oral antibiotics. And thankfully, he makes a full, uncomplicated recovery. So this case is an example of why acute otitis media, though very common and mostly self-resolving, does need to be considered carefully. There are some specific scenarios where immediate antibiotics are the right thing to do, and complications of acute otitis media include perforation of the tympanic membrane, meningitis, intracranial abscess, subtemporal abscess, neck abscesses and facial nerve palsy, as well as varying degrees of both reversible and irreversible hearing losses. It's a condition that's seen very commonly in general practice and also presents to A&E and ENT emergency clinics. Any doctor seeing children should stay up to date with the latest NICE guidance and be aware of the signs and symptoms that should prompt more urgent specialist involvement. So I hope you found that case interesting. We see lots of children in ENT and it really is a rewarding aspect of the job. If you enjoyed listening or have any questions, then feel free to message me via my Instagram at Joe. Thanks for scrubbing in.